Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. This is a conversation Rory had only a couple of days ago with Niall Muldoon, the Ombudsman for Children. This is the third time Niall has come on to the Tortoise Shack and we're always delighted to chat with him and we always get a great reaction. Uh, if you like what we do, if you enjoy the podcast, even if you don't enjoy the podcast but you listen just because you want to give out, uh, patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. There's lots more there. Over a thousand of our podcasts in one place, one consolidated feed, completely plea free. And for the price of a fancy cup of coffee, you help keep the show on the road. I won't delay any further. Thanks for listening. Thanks for rating, reviewing, sharing, telling people. Uh, but please, 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 if you have it, pay it forward and help keep this show on the road. Thanks again and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope. And I'm your host, Rory Hearn. Delighted to be joined back on the podcast today by another one of our guests who listeners have really um, enjoyed and found engaging um, when we've had him before. It is Niall Muldoon, who is the Ombudsman for Children. Um, Niall, thanks a million for coming back on Reboot Republic. Thanks for the invitation, Rory. Delighted to be here. Yeah, no, it's great to have you back. Um, and since you were on last, you were reappointed um, as Ombudsman for Children again for a second term. You've been in the position since 2015. Um, I wonder, is uh, how do you feel about that? How has it gone for the second term? What's what's your sense of it now? Yeah, well, I mean, listen, I, I'm absolutely delighted and honoured to have got to be reappointed. I mean, it's a it's a huge uh, honour, and, and I'm very humbled to become Ombudsman for Children the first time. And then I had to think long and hard about whether I'd put my name forward for reappointment because it's a t- it's a tough job, you know, it's twenty four seven. Um, but I felt I still had the energy, I still had the desire, and I felt there was a lot of work still to be done that I would like to engage with. And I also felt that we pulled together a very good team that were ready to really make it an impact. So I was really, again, was as I said, was honoured to be uh, nominated by the government to go forward for a second term. My last term as well, I can't go any further. Um, and since then, I think, I feel I've been pushing with, with strong energy. I feel that I've I probably possibly have been a little bit more bolshy, you know, the sense that it's um, it is my second term. I know what I'm doing. People know me, and I think I'm just going to be a bit stronger on things. And okay, not not accepting the same maybe level of of apathy at times or excuses. Um, and we're just trying to make things happen now. Yeah, you know, no, that's, as much as ever. That's good to hear. It's good to hear because it's uh, needed more than ever when you know children when we. Talk about children and we have done before and, you know, your office has done um, excellent work, you know, they're particularly thinking of the report you did on um, No Place Called Home, Child Homelessness and the experience yeah. of, of homelessness, but also traveller children as well, the experience of growing up on halting sites, some really powerful work and, and some of them. Um, uh, I know in terms of as well, you've been at the Rockdus recently with children talking around mental health, if I'm right. Yeah. Um, and I think some of the most interesting approach that you have taken, and I think pursued in practice, which is the involving of children themselves in these issues and bringing their voices forward in a meaningful way, in a real way. Um, so I think I'd really like to commend you on that because there's a lot of talk of involving people in you know, issues and services and getting voices heard, but you've managed to do it, I think, really well and in a way that has kind of kept um as was protected them but also kept the issue very much real and alive um in terms of i suppose what what do you feel that you've achieved and the office has achieved so far over the i suppose since you've been there since 2015 well i think you've touched on one of the ones that i really wanted to make it an impact on was was getting the voices. I, I see our role as an office is getting the voices of children to the highest level of power and making those decisions. Uh, the people who make those decisions really know what impact they have when they make a decision on the children. So we and that's why we focused on on those children, the vulnerable groups. We went deliberately deliberately for the children who are very seldom heard. Um, and again, that's a term that, from my point of view, we've tried to make sure that it's that we 
allow ourselves to hear those voices. I think a lot of the people in power don't go out of their way to listen to those voices. Mm. They listen to their representatives, but they don't listen to the children. So again, like you say, we've listened to children um, who were homeless, living in family homes. We've listened to, we've put out pieces on children who are in direct provision. We chatted to children who were in inpatient residential mental health settings. Um, we've talked talked to children who've lost, who don't have places in schools, you know, with this children with disability. So again, we we've constantly tried to get those voices out. That's one of the things I think we've achieved, and we've we've shown that it can be done. And now I'm really delighted that the Department of Education are going to have a, a, a children's voice unit. And again, how ironic is that it's taken over 100 years for the Department of Education, which is the most contact with children, to have a unit on children's voices. Yeah. That's, that's been powerful from our point of view. We've done a number of changes in regards to, you know, 2017 when uh, we got access to children and our children in direct provision got access to us. We completed an investigation on direct provision two years ago, a year ago. We're following up on that. We've called for, for the, the closure of direct revision. We've, we've encouraged the white paper. We've also engaged with a number of, of investigations around children with disability and children with uh, brain injuries, which has started to change the system. Again, creating more, more uh, engagement between diverse agencies, TUSLA and HSE, working together on children with children with disability in care and foster care, and also children who are in hospital who need to come out of hospital but need uh, appropriate care have been left in there for too long. Some the, the case we did with Jack had a young boy with brain injury who was in hospital for two years when he didn't need to be past his medical needs. And we've got the, the HSE and TUSA to work together on, on those sort of issues. So we're, we're starting to move. And then on a bigger scale, I think, as an office, we have now created a, a reputation in which we are strong but fair. So I think the departments aren't afraid of us coming at them, but they're willing to they're willing to engage with us and we um, make recommendations that are doable. Um, you'll see that from the, you talked about the, the, the traveler uh, investigation that we did with children and young people. We spent two years completing that investigation, but we spent the next year then engaging with the local authorities so that they would accept our recommendations and make them happen. And one year after that, they've made I think probably seven out of the 10 recommendations have, are well on their way to being completed because we negotiated with them and we made sure that we we done it, did it the right way, as opposed to forcing things through and creating a, a sort of a, a standoff. So I think that's, that's there's some of the, the, the elements I think I'm very proud of. And just in terms of then, what do you see are, and you've named obviously, you know, those areas, but where do you see, Ireland at the moment really falling down on children. And, and I would assume that these are, you know, complaints that you're getting or issues that are ra being raised with you. What are the big issues in terms of children? Well, I mean, you, you're obviously housing is housing and homelessness is, is one of the big issues that we're very much aware of. Mental health is another one. Um, everywhere we go, everywhere we go. And any, any survey you hear of children talking about their lives, mental health is raised. And it's consistently raised from young, from primary school through to post-primary. Um, disability or the support for children with disability is still a big issue. Um, and then the concept of education, I think, is changing enormously. And we're looking at that and how that needs to be. I mean, it's one of our strategic priorities at the moment is the future of education, we're calling mm. it. Because, you know, there's so many elements to it. Children are getting their voices heard. You now have the ISSU representative um, within the what they call the education partners. You know, yeah. there's, there's 17 education partners and only one 17th is, is students, but they're at least they're represented for the first time since COVID that happened. So there, those issues are, so within education, you've got bullying, you've got um, discrimination, you've got SNA supports, you've got um, places. So there's a range of stuff within education as well. But I think they're the sort of major ones, homeless housing, mental health, disability and education they're the, the big issues and yeah. just on the homelessness because we've seen um a dramatic increase again after the fall during covid um we saw during covid the first time in about five or six years um homelessness family homelessness and children being homeless with their families falling significantly during covid and i remember at the time when the eviction ban was lifted 
um, in May of April, May of 2021. Um, that, you know, I made the point at the time and others did that lifting this ban, we were going to see um, a tsunami of homelessness again. And unfortunately, it has happened. Um, and we're seeing now, you know, over three and a half thousand children with their families homeless um, in emergency accommodation from hotels to family hubs. Um, how concerned are you um, about the level of child and family homelessness that we're at right now? It's it's horrific, Rory. I mean, it's it's horrible to be an ombudsman for children in a society as rich and as well off as we are, and to be residing or to be part of looking at a government that's residing over three and a half thousand children who are homeless. Again, I'm very clear, and you're very clear, and you've got the, you've got the statistics more than I have. Family and child homelessness were not an issue in, by, up until about 2011. This is created by policies in which we stopped building our own houses as a state and moved everything on to the private enterprise. We can fix it in the same way by returning children into the homes and creating housing. So again, even I, I don't have all the issue, all the answers, but when I look at housing for all, or sorry, um, rebuilding Ireland in 2016, a range of targets under five pillars, none of those targets were reached. That's a government failure. When I look at uh, housing for all, a number of targets, none of those were reached. Even this year, we we looked like we're going to finish 25,000 new units. So 2022, I mean, 25,000 new units. But we only need to house 2,000 families to take all children out of homelessness, and we aren't prioritizing them. So for me, the legislation and both of those policy programs, none of them had children or families to the fore. They had units to the fore. They had numbers to the fore. They had buildings to the fore but they didn't take into account children. And that's why last year we we pushed the government to try and look at the, using the word eradication of homelessness, not just doing better, improving, reducing the numbers. So as far as I'm concerned, I mean, again, the government need to put children and families to the fore, um, you know, with the 25,000 units that are coming on stream in 2022, how hard can it be to target 3,000 of those homes to provide for the children who are currently homeless, you know, to provide for their families. It's 3,500 children, probably about 2,500 units, family units. Why haven't they been taken out of out of homelessness? We need to eradicate it for children because it's just... No. It, mm-hmm. Go on, yeah, go on. It's just that it, it, what without doing it, the longer we leave it, the more harm and trauma we're building up for those young people. Yeah. And, and the research I was doing um, for the Irish Research Council on measuring homelessness uh, recently, and it was highlighted, actually, the, the article covered a presentation I did um, where I was showing that actually the numbers of um, children and families who are being made homeless is much, much higher than the actual numbers recorded in emergency accommodation. Um, and I was looking at, I think it was in the region of, I don't know if the figures exactly to hand, but it was definitely about double the numbers who are in emergency accommodation present as homeless. And okay. half of them are prevented from going into emergency accommodation. But the point I was making was that they are experiencing the trauma of home loss. Some of them are losing their home. They've been maybe finding somewhere else, but that is a phenomenal number. And also the point being that those 3,000, 3,500 children who are in homelessness, in emergency accommodation, in the the month where it's recorded, the week during the month it's recorded, mm. and that's put out as our monthly figures, that is probably a different, more than likely it is, because we know there's a significant number leave, a different 3,500 the following year. So yeah. There is the, you know, we're seeing um, and we don't. And this is my critique of the figures. We the um, even the government doesn't track these children as they go through. They're not all contacted, families contacted and offered supports. They're not all measured. They measured the families who enter emergency accommodation, but they don't, you know, directly measure and track each child. So we have these children going through trauma and their families, but the state isn't even responding adequately or even measuring them adequately there. And that doesn't include, of course, the hidden homelessness, which is families, you know, couch surfing um, and that. So there's a real issue there, I think, in our state response. 
Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, again, if we go back to our no place like home uh, conversations and consult consultation with the young people, you know, they talk about the, the trauma of, you know, having to hide homelessness from their friends, you know, and yeah. given a different address, how they might not be able to, if, if their parents are separate, they're not able to meet their father in that building. They have to go somewhere else, they have to leave yeah. the house, and then they've got curfews trying to do their homework in a, in a single room where they might have two other younger siblings and the light has to go out at half seven because the children have to go, the younger children have to go to bed and they have to do their homework in the toilet. So the trauma that we're imp- imposing on these families, when we have the facilities, we have the opportunity, we have the funding, but we don't seem to focus it there to try and say, listen, let's take this group out of homelessness first, which will in turn relieve the pressure on others and allow us then to move on to the next group of people who are in homelessness you know again if we go the, the international research on on houses first for people who are homeless it shows the real impact of creating that opportunity when you give them a house everybody is much more stable and it creates an opportunity to change we need to be doing that for our children you know it's not impossible we i saw it was a, a paper in november that said that we have built twenty two thousand apartments since 2018 but not one of them went on the market you know so what are the government doing with them is there not opportunities there even within those those the way things are happening at the moment to bring people out yeah even modular you know how how hard would it be able to build modular yeah right this is not your permanent home but we're going to make sure you're not an emergency you're going to have an own own door situation and we'll move on from there. But just there's no sense of children are at the front, uh, for, forefront of this thinking. Do you think that there's an acceptance that, because we heard this kind of narrative that, you know, our levels of homelessness, and, and it's been kind of going on in a way since 2016, um, by various, you know, members of government, members of our state, members of, you know, homeless services even, um, arguing that, you know, the, that, you know, Ireland's homelessness is, you know, pretty much normal and in comparison to other European countries and we're not an outlier. And the underlying kind of idea is that, well, we should really just accept kind of this level of homelessness. And do you think that there is this acceptance by the state that, you know, this level of homelessness is acceptable. It's normal. And there's not a real sense that this is outrageous, unacceptable, unethical, and we should be doing everything to stop it. I think I'm, I'm afraid, I don't know if it's an acceptance, but I think there might be a, a, a giving in to that this is harder than we expected. And therefore we, we put out the message that this is average. And I think that's just a political decision to turn to create a narrative that is a little bit easier on them. But the reality is that they sh- there's not one person in the wider society who thinks this is acceptable. Yeah. You know, and you you tap into that very regularly in the in the people on the ground. Nobody will accept. Again, I would challenge any minister to say those things two days after he spent a weekend in the fam- with his family in one bedroom or in a, in a hotel room trying to survive for just for a weekend it would it's it's horrible it's horrible to think about it it's horrible to accept it it's horrible to say that it's average and we need to look at thinking that this is okay because the rest of the world is doing it like this we should be showing standards we should be the ones that people turn to and say ireland had done something different here and they found a way around this we should never accept that for our children it's and you know and it it is disgusting to think of it that way that people would accept it as a, as a norm and say, okay, we'll have to allow a certain level number of our families to live this way. No, yeah. we don't. We do not. Yeah, no, absolutely we don't. And I think there's a real need um for given what is ahead in the you know the lack of homes out there at the moment for um the eviction ban to be extended come um March and April because we know and I'm been contacted every day by families with children saying we do not know where we're going to go if that eviction ban isn't extended. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think it was it last weekend they, they talked about only having, is there 40 houses around the, around the whole of the country available for HAP? Yeah. In the yeah. whole of the country and probably only about two or 300 available to rent in general. So the system has actually cannibalized itself. The government have created this privatized system. Renters are the way forward. Landlords are the king to, king of everything. 
Um, we bring in big investors from around the world, but we'll give them all the tax breaks and then they don't want to sell them. They want to keep the rent at a certain level. It has cannibalized itself. So the government need to break out of that now. They need to start saying, okay, we're changing the way we do things. And you cannot do that by saying, we're going to accept an average of X number of people as homeless. That's not the way forward. Yeah. The way forward is to use the word eradicate and eliminate. And in fact, they have signed up the Lisbon Declaration, which says by 2030, we will have eliminated homelessness in Ireland. That's yeah. a EU-wide uh, uh, treaty. And the Ireland have signed up to that. So that's 2030. That's only seven years away. And all I'm saying is let's prioritize, start with children, eradicate child homelessness, and then eradicate homelessness in the next seven years. Yeah. But it doesn't, the action doesn't seem to fit that. No, no. And of course, then the need to keep the pressure on around that. Um, and just finally on housing, the right to housing referendum, uh, we hope that that will come this year. Um, and a very clear wording will come out of the Housing Commission and the government will progress that, that we do have that referendum. You know, we've talked a lot about this and how important this is. Um, a referendum would be putting a right to housing in the Constitution. Maybe just to reiterate again, uh, for your perspective, why that's so important. Yeah, listen, it's, it, it, I always go back to the, most people have heard of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, where you yeah. start at the bottom with shelter and safety. You cannot progress your life. You cannot feel safe in life. You cannot educate yourself. You cannot grow yourself if you don't have a safe shelter. That's the basic needs of every child and adult in Ireland and in the world. You know, it started with the caves. When you weren't living in caves, you weren't safe. Yeah. Now, when you, if you don't have a brick house or apartment, you're not safe. You know, you don't know where you're going every day. You don't know what's going to happen the next day. You don't know how long you're going to be there. You don't know what time you have to go to bed. You don't know where your food's coming from. That is a horrible, horrible way to live your life. So by putting the right of a, a, to a home or to a house into, your, into the Constitution, we're saying to you, listen, we're giving you the basics here. We guarantee you the basics. We guarantee you a safe place to live where you can start growing as a child, where you can start focusing on the outside. You can start focusing on your, yourself and, and learning as much as you can, growing, reaching your potential. And we'll take away that stress and strain of not knowing where you're going to be the next day and where you're going to live. And it also, for me too, it also balances off that, I've listened, I'm 55 years of age, I've listened all my life to this idea that property rights trump everything yeah. because of our constitution. This starts to balance that off. You know, yeah. again, I, I still think we're the ludicrous country that had an upward only rent because of our constitutional right to property. And then we'll be this constitutional right to property, but not if you're homeless. So we, it allows that conversation to happen and we need to balance those things out yeah. um, and create a, a much more equal and fair society. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I really hope that that will happen this year um, and we get that through. Of course, there will be a big campaign required on that. Um, just to move on, Niall, in terms of the other area we, we touched on there, mental health and children, um, what are the sort of issues you're seeing? And of course, it's, you know, we think of children and mental health, you know, there's obviously a spectrum from, you know, mental ill health, illness, you know, severe illness, you know, anxiety. Um, and of course, it's deeply worrying. And, and I saw recently there in the Irish Times reported in terms of, you know, children not, not getting access to services. And, you know, there's, you know, you've done a lot of push in terms of children getting access to even assessments, but then what services are in place to support them. Um, but even on a much broader level, you know, what, what is happening with our children's, you know, mental health? And, you know, it, it's, it just, it seems to me it's, at a most basic level, it's something we should be ensuring that our children have access to mental health services and supports because, of course, their brain in at this point is developing. And so we know that mental ill health affects your brain development, which, of course, can leave, you know, lifetime impacts. We know, of course, oh. there's neuroplasticity and all that as well. But it, it is an important time, really important time that we ensure children's mental health is supported um, and that we take responsibility for it as a country. It's not just individualized as well. Yeah. But uh, sorry, my, my rant over. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Listen, uh, you're, you're spot on. I mean, again, the, the research now more, more and more points to even your first thousand days as a child needs to be safe, secure, and allow you that level of attachment 
And again, another reason for having a safe, secure home. Mm. You know, children who are born in the first two years into homelessness pick up that sort of energy of negativity and fear and uncertainty and probably tension, stress, stress that the parents have. Yeah. You know, and it makes it harder for their mental health to be as good as it could be. If you have that first thousand days and you're safe, secure and warm and everybody's loving you and caring for you and everything's safe and your needs are met, then that creates a much stronger individual. You can always recover, but you'd rather not having to recover. Similarly, I, I'm seeing now over the last probably two, three years, and I think COVID may not have been the only reason for it, but I think children were getting finding themselves more stressed more regularly through that sort of concept of um, wider availability to society through social media and open open sharing with people. Um, children were finding attention with that. The younger people have feel, I think there's a sense moving towards perfection, Rory. I think there's a, parents are a lot more looking to be the best they can be and they want people to thrive and strive and do that. And that pushes on children and children may do that, but they may do it at different stages in their lives, but they could feel the pressure from very early age as well. Yeah. So I think we're, we're hearing that. And as I said to you before, and we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll be talking a little bit about the UN in a little while, but we had our young people come in, our young youth advisory panel that we work with here they engaged with young people. And we also did a survey of five and a half thousand kids around the country and mental health came up at the top of the tree. Every one of them from, we listened to children from two years of age to 17 have a concern about mental health. So they see it in their friends. They see friends that are anxious, friends that are afraid to talk about things, friends that get upset at the drop of a hat. And that's happening all the time. And it's one of the reasons I'm, I'm absolutely delighted to see a real strong initiative. I hope it'll, it'll, secure itself within the Department of Health, where they've got 5 million euros for a pilot for therapy in primary schools. And yeah. work, that's supposed to happen in September next year. They're working on how that makes that happen. But that's something I've been pushing for is the concept of therapy in primary schools. Because that's straight away saying to children, saying a lot of things, saying, if you've got a problem, we can help you fix it. And we can help you fix it here so you don't have to go to somewhere special and leave your education system. And it also says, we recognize that children, you as children will need this help. And it makes it normal and it makes it okay. And it means that if you're seven years of age and your parents are separating and you don't know what's going on, you can have a chance to talk it out with somebody. Whereas if you, if your parents separated seven years of age, you don't know what's going on. You don't talk it out. You internalize it. By 12, you could be angry. You could be possibly drinking or acting out in some way. And it becomes harder to do the therapy to kick in because you mightn't even know it's related to the separations. So things like that start to, that's a really good initiative. We can get it up and running. Yeah. But as, and then as, at the age of, older stages and teenagers, we do have a real shortage of, of, of support within the primary care level, which in turn leads to longer waiting lists in, in CAMS. You know, and again, we saw even just recently, um, the numbers from CAMS are just, again, very, very scary. 4,000 children waiting for their first appointment over nearly, uh, I think it's 600 waiting over a year. Yeah. And again, isn't there an issue with CAMS that it's a quite a, from what I've heard anyway, it is quite a medicalized approach yeah. that it doesn't provide like therapy or, you know, other, um, you know, interventions that aren't just medicalized, individually medicalized. That, yeah, it's it absolutely, I mean, the system is, it's very much built on the medical system. I mean, it's in the legislation that it's supposed to be run by a consultant psychiatrist, which by the very nature yeah. will create a medical uh, focus on it. Some psychiatrists will indeed do therapy as well, but it's rare. But again, what, what we found, there's, in England, they brought together the National Health Service and the Department of Education worked together to create a mental health support team in schools. And what they found that within one year of setting up that pilot, they in 10 schools, within one year, they had taken a thousand children off the CAMS waiting list. So there's a thousand kids who went for maybe therapy for maybe six to eight weeks. They no longer needed to be on the serious CAMS waiting list. And it just, it shows that a lot of people are on the CAMS waiting list who don't need to be there. If we can get to them early, if we can intervene early, they won't make it as far as there. And it allows us that space and allows those children to say, okay, well, I was worried about, really worried about myself being on CAMS, but I don't need to be. I've, got, I've just gone and chatted to somebody, I've talked things out. So that yeah. talk therapy, that op opportunity to say, and again, within that group as well, 
you will have a few in which therapy isn't enough. You do need medical intervention. But you need to meet people face-to-face. You need to see them. You need to give them the opportunity. And education is where it's at. And that's what children, when we listen to children's voices, whether it was the children in, who we spoke to who were in inpatient mental health units or the children we spoke to for the United Nations um, report, pieces of us, five and a half thousand children around the country, they all said we wanted in our education system because they don't want to have to leave school, take two hours to travel somewhere, do an hour's therapy, take two hours to come home and then a day yeah. gone. And also all their friends ask, what are you at? Where were you? Oh, I don't want to say. You know, it yeah. changes It changes the way we see therapy. It becomes normal. Yeah. It becomes okay. And it also helps the teachers. Imagine what it takes the pressure off a teacher. They, mm. they don't have to guess and, what's and, going on for the child. Yeah. yeah, and it's two things. One, that there's different forms of therapy. Um, and, you know, I'm sure that there's discussion around that as well, like the CBT, which yeah. is quite, you know, positive and constructive. And then there can be other forms of therapy that are, you know, more, um, now again, I'm not an expert in this area, you are. <laughs> but uh, in terms of uh, the, having some experience that can be quite, to a certain extent, I'd almost call it pathologizing of yourself. Mm. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it can be quite, um, rather than, you know, it just sits there and you've, you know, you do the talking and whether it's more deeply, it's not just psychoanalytical, but it's, it's more, it, the therapist doesn't play an active role in, in that sense. Whereas for children, you know, from what I've heard from education psychologists and that they say children benefit much more. And particularly if it's not a very severe trauma from you know therapies that are active play therapy cbt yeah. therapy all that so what yeah. what would be as the expert what do you think of that no i think that's i think there's a the, we need to make sure especially in primary school you're gonna have to have a range of therapies mm. you know uh, like you have play play therapy drama therapy music therapy water therapy there's a whole range of ways again what you're doing is you're trying to allow the child every opportunity to express themselves yeah and children express themselves in different ways Children do it in sand, they do it in, in play, they do it with paint, they do it with drawings, uh, and some can do it with words. Some will talk you through it, they're quite able for it. So it's just, it's being aware that you need to create those opportunities. And I think what we've got to do, and that in turn, again, if you're doing play therapy as a child, you don't feel pathologized. Yeah. You know, and I think that's the important piece. Anybody going for therapy, if you can normalize therapeutic services within an education system, Children will grow up saying, I'll go, I need to go for a touch of therapy. I need another top-up. You mm. know, I've, I've done therapy. That's part of my training. I did over 300 hours in a, in a two-year period. And it was wonderful. But I go back every year, every two years, whenever I need to. I might do three or four or five weeks just to top myself up because it becomes a safe space for people. Yeah. To, you can yeah. trust people to talk things out. And that's where we need to get to. We need to, yeah. our children to recognize it's okay to say I'm not in a good space at the moment. And I know exactly who to talk to about it. And yeah. I'm going to talk to it and I'm not afraid of it. And nobody's going to slag me over it. And then we've changed our society that way. You know, that becomes a much more appropriate way to deal with things as opposed to drinking, closing down, being men with strong, you know, stiff upper lip, being women. Who, toxic masculinity. Toxic and mas- Absolutely. So it changes all of those facets if you yeah, can start to, to intervene to early. Express. And yeah. of course, what comes to my head is I, I did therapy as well for a while. Um, but I don't do it now because it's 80 euro a session. I literally don't have the money because it's yes. going to childcare. Um, yeah. And it raises that whole issue of cost and access yeah. to services. And um, and before I come to that, I just want to ask you a broader question that is, the, and, and is that there is a certain extent, is there a danger that we do as I refer to pathologize children or individualize the responsibility of the mental health situation onto them rather than looking at the structures and mm. systems in our society. Be, and you mentioned this, you know, in terms of parenting, but even wider, like poverty, the economic model that forces people to, you know, to work all hours, they're stressed, they're, you know, our whole economic system is based on, you know, essentially, you know, profit. It's not based on well-being or care or, you know, how are people sense that and that model is going to it create sick adults and it creates sick children and that there is more questioning and changing of our whole economy and society needed so that children then aren't the ones no different than adults that are sort of blamed for their mental health. Yeah. No, I, I think you're you're 100 percent right. And I think we, we need to work towards that. 
there's always a there was a great example a guy called Colin Cusack I don't know if you remember he was a Cork GA player he talked about yeah. how he he was trained as a as a a gardener and he said every time they planted seeds they'd, they'd water them they'd fertilize them they'd do everything else and if a seed didn't grow they didn't look at the seed they looked at what they put into the environment they looked at, yeah. the, at the ground around them did we use the right fertilizer did we change the time enough to be, were they in the sunlight enough were they in the water enough it's not the seed's fault it's the environment around it so i think that's exactly what you're talking about and i think one of the things i have a little bit of I have hope for now is that when the the Taoiseach announced the setting up of a new child poverty unit, Yeah, which I hope has to move in that direction. It has to move in how we're changing the system and the society that creates poverty and supports people who end up in poverty. That's what needs to take and takes a lot of the pressure off children so that it isn't the child trying to fix something in isolation. Their whole society is changing. You know, and again, it's one of the reasons I would often push when we talk about schools and you've heard me say this before with schools in dash settings you know disadvantaged settings and they get extra yeah. support if we put if we nominate a school as being in a dash setting we should be also supporting the whole community around them so there's extra extra adult education there's uh, addiction services there's literacy services there's employment being brought in so that the school isn't an oasis on its own trying to fix society's ills and yet, so I think you're 100% right. We need to move as a society to, to improving the environment in which our children grow up, particularly our children in poverty. And again, you've talked, we've, what are we, top five in Europe, say financially and in GDP, but yet we have 18% of our children at risk of, of ongoing poverty. That's, that's an anomaly that should never be allowed to happen. And that's our society choosing certain policies. And our government with a child poverty unit needs to change that. They need to bring Department of Education, Department of Housing, Department of Society, Social Protection, um, Department of, of Art and Culture and Sports together and start working. Say, listen, these children need a lot of support, not just extra money in the pockets of the parents. Yeah, absolutely. And just the the other area is children um, with disabilities, disabled children. What sort of because you know you hear it all the time, and you know I I know people close to me as well who are you know struggling to get supports, um, and you're talking about again our most vulnerable children. We're not doing it right yet around that, or is it changing, or is it you know where where are we at? Because I hear you know all the time people struggling to get supports and services, having to pay for it privately, and yeah, again I think we've we've. This is one of the situations in which I think we've, we've left it very late to try and fix the services. Disability, again, we, we did a police uh, report early last year, 2022, called uh, Plan for Places, where we had been getting so many complaints from parents about the lack of a school place for their child. Every time we went to investigate, the, the schools just said, we don't have the resources, we can't open a place. So we, we couldn't follow through the investigation. So we did a full report. And we spent a year working with the Department of Education to say, listen, where, where's your data? What do you do with your data? How do you connect that data to the building units? Why have we not got enough places? I mean, the child is born, if a child is born with a disability, you know four and a half years later, you're going to need a school place for them. Mm-hmm. If they get a school place there, you know eight years from now, you're going to need a secondary school place. Why is this so hard to make happen? And I found that they they weren't talking to each other. The building unit wasn't talking to the data people. The data people had gathered the wrong stuff. And it had just started to come together in the last two years. And it still wasn't working well enough. So when we came out in May of last year, there was close to 200 children without school places for September. And these were children. Some of those children were secondary schools. So again, you'd had eight years to prepare for them. Now, and then they found it. They scrambled. They found a way. And now we're still here. This is now January of 23 and i haven't received a report to say that they know exactly how many people need spaces for 2023 september and how they all been filled are they all ready to go so again it's a way of doing things that needs to change enormously because we as a society cannot allow this to happen for our children again we have children progress if we look back 20 years the progress for children with disability is huge it's massive you know i've met family members who maybe have a an eight or nine year old child with a severe disability and they're very clear that if they've been born 15 years ago that child wouldn't have lived 
So we have to constantly evolve and change to support our children with disabilities so that they can live their best life. And we haven't done that. We've kept the same system that's been in place for 30 years. You know, that's why we, we didn't implement the Epson Act, which is the Education for Personal Special Education Needs, which would have put a child's right into the system. Um, and we need to bring that forward now so that we're, we're creating an inclusive education system in which a child with education or a child with a disability goes to the same school. It may not be the same building. It may be the same campus as every other child, as their brother and sister and as their neighbor. And they learn to go through the schools together so that we can create inclusivity in its most real sense, not just parallel, not just side by side, not just education for you, but it's 10, 20 miles away from your brother. We have to start working in that direction because we're not going to accept it any longer. But at the same time, we need to respect our professionals. Financially, we need to give them the right, the right funding. We need to train them properly. We need to give them housings that they can afford. We need to respect all of our professionals who work in these areas. The teachers need to be able to, to stay in, in Dublin. They need to be able to afford somewhere to, to live. And they need to be trained on how to work with special education needs. So it's, it's a rounded approach that needs to be taken. And I'm afraid and they've created a minister for special education, which is a good start. And we need to see action coming from that in the next two and a half years, or this government will not have achieved what they said they were going to achieve. Mm, absolutely. And just listen, finally, uh, we can't really talk about children without talking about climate change, unfortunately. Um, that is the reality. Do you get much contact from children or does that come up much as an issue? It, it comes up in discussions, but I suppose it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to make a complaint about. Yeah. You know, so we don't necessarily get a lot of complaints around that area. You can't sort of say the government have made my area smoky or something. It's, it's slightly, it's a, it's in the ether. And when you talk about, when you have focus groups and you ask issues, that's something they're really concerned about. And again, you know, we talked earlier about mental health. Some children are really anxious about that. Yeah. Because yeah. the narrative is quite negative. The narrative is yeah. very scary. This idea that, you know, I, I that, can't, I can't go to the bathroom now without the light being turned off while I'm in the bathroom. That's your, that's, that's the kids, the, the seven-year-old, the nine-year-old are literally yeah. screaming at me, turn off the light. Yeah. Yeah. And, I'm going like they're literally running around the place, and whenever there's a light on, they just turn it off immediately. You could be in, <laughs> in in the bathroom or whatever in the cupboard doing something, and yeah, it's great. But on the other hand, you're going, and and my daughter as well. You know, around the climate strikes, um, was absolutely, and you know, there's definitely a climate anxiety, yeah. within them, within them, yeah. um, yeah. and it is like it's real, yeah. it's very real, yeah. And they feel it. And it's interesting then, you know, when they don't fully understand it, they look at later on the road and they go, oh, my God, that's destroying the world. It's destroying, you know, and they get really, yeah. really upset when they see litter. And yeah. and this is very, it's very real. It is. And excuse, it's, you know, again, like I have a, I have a slightly older generation of, of kids, but they are very clear that, you know, they've been told they might be the last generation. That's what we're talking about. We're saying, you know. Yeah. Daddy, you you've destroyed our thing, so we have nothing to we've nothing to look forward to, and your young your generation are one below that again, you know. And it just it is an anxiety that's out there. What is going to happen here? Can we survive? Let's say we're talking about survival, yeah. And at se seven and nine years of age, that's real concrete. Survival yeah. is life or death. So yeah. if we have a poor environment, and they see a poor environment around their area, that can be anxiety mm. rich. So, yeah, I mean, I think climate change, is, again, we need to move forward. It, it's been one of the ones where I think the government have got a lot of uh, a lot of opportunity to listen to children's voices. And they, they play on that and they show themselves talking to the children all the time, but they don't think they act on it enough. Mm. You know, they don't listen to the children and say, listen, have you done this again? How many schools have been updated uh, to be environmentally friendly? You know, they're still not using school properties for uh, probably one third of all the time they're available, you know, so environmentally friendly, instead of building extra community centers, you could use the school more often weekends, stuff like that. So there's ways of doing it. that children have recommended um, and they aren't been done. So it, it's, there's a lot of lip service there as regards children's voices in that in, in relation to climate change. Yeah. No, I think it's, it comes back to the question of how we run our society and our economy. And it's, you know, it's not just Ireland, it's globally as a, as a human race and what we're doing. Um, 
And, you know, it does really, I think, raise fundamental questions about, you know, everything around what we're doing and how we're, you know, what are our children growing up to live in? Um, and that is, of course, a responsibility for us. Um, just a final, final one, because we can't really talk about it uh, or not talk about it, which, is, of course, is the issue of, um, as you mentioned, direct provision and children growing up in direct provision. And, of course, we've seen uh, very recently um, very, very sad um, scenes at um, emergency accommodation centres um, where protests being held, instigated by the far right, um, and playing upon people's uh, now it's saying fears of outsiders and refugees, but at the heart of it really is anger over housing um, and failure to to address housing. Um, but how concerned or what is your if you have a view on that in terms of those protests or um, just in terms of the treatment of refugees and asylum seekers children in Ireland? I mean, listen, of course, I'm extremely concerned about families who have to face that sort of uh that sort of protest, that sort of negativity on the back of where they've come from. You know, these children are being dragged all the way, halfway around the world, you know, left their homes, their families. They could have parents back at home. They could have whatever they've gone through. They've come from war-torn areas. They really are under hugely traumatic, coming from a traumatic background. And they're coming here for safety. Again, we're back to that sort of sense of safety. Mm -hmm. You know, what you need just to get basic life is safety. And they feel they're safe, and then all of a sudden, these protests are outside saying, "We don't want you here." That's horrible. That's that's really traumatic for them. It adds to the trauma they've had. It makes them feel unsafe, and they're not sure if they want to stay here anymore. And again, it's it's the far right are masters at creating this other, creating this other narrative. These others are they're the bad guys. And in reality, again, it's back as you say, it's back to the basics. We as a state have not built enough houses. To, to house our own people, which makes them angry when they see somebody else getting it. But I guarantee it's, there's none of, nobody in the protest would say, my child hasn't been able to get a house, but I'm very cross, or I'll be happy if they get into a Ballymun Lodge. You know, that's the travel lodge. That's not what they're looking for either. They're just stating, they're, they're protesting against something in the wrong way. And we need to clarify those, separate those things out, say, listen, we're going to work on our overall accommodation levels, create opportunities for people to get the homes that they want, change our rental systems so that people can get into a rental safely and securely and with some sort of longevity to it. You know, we haven't, that's something that doesn't take money, it takes legislation and change and looking at things differently so that we can take the power off, the, off those people who want to create that othering, who want to create that protest. And people feel, you know, because Ireland, by and large, has been hugely welcoming to people from outside of the country. Hugely welcoming. We have changed enormously again in the last 20 years, but we have not changed the system in which we accept children and families in. You know, that direct provision system, that uh, international protection system still takes too long, doesn't provide quality for the people who are in it when they turn up. And now we're, we're reaping, unfortunately, we're reaping the bad rewards of that because we've been overcrowded um, and it just wasn't a priority. Now we need to get, because the children are coming, there's huge numbers of children, even the fact that we have, I think we're close to 5,000 people within the direct provision system who have the right to stay in Ireland, but cannot get out of it. Yeah. You know, they have yeah. to, they, so again, they have to make a because choice. Because of the lack of, because the lack of housing. somewhere yeah. else to go. So again, yeah. that was predictable. It was highlighted many years ago. But we didn't invest. We allowed the profiteers to keep making the profit. We didn't say, right, we're going to, as a nation, we're going to build our own houses. And, and of and, course, it, it comes back to as well the, you know, what we've talked about the the failure to um, address homelessness in Ireland. You know the, ch you know, because these, you know, the families, and you know, I spoke to some of them, you know, who've been at the protests that are the most angry. Um, are, are either have experienced homelessness or have family members homeless. These are the yeah. communities which are experiencing the highest rates of homelessness. Yeah. And it has been the failure of government and the state to actually value children from these communities that has created this space within which the far right can steer that anger, you know, wrongly onto yeah. refugees and asylum seekers. 
Um, and of course, I think, you know, as you're right, as what you said, we need to put, you know, explain very clearly that, you know, the the cause of this home of your homelessness and your community's homelessness is not asylum seekers. Yeah. Um, it is the fact that we you know we have we actually have enough housing. You know, we've over 160,000 vacant homes. It's the use of our property, how our property yeah. system is. Yeah. Um, and as you said, the failure to build social housing. But I think there's yeah. a real need to talk about that as part of it rather than just seeing it, which I hear a lot in the media, like, oh, this is their anger against, you know, people coming in and it's anger against the, you know, uh, foreigners coming in. It's not. It's anger yeah. about housing that's been manipulated Correct. towards refugees. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, that's, that's crucial. And we have to keep, we have to keep shining a light on that, that the, that their anger is appropriate. It's just mm. been pointed in the wrong direction. You know, and again, like that, you know, that that number that I keep coming back to that number in my head, the, the 22,000 apartments built all to rent by yeah. multinationals who paid no taxes. That's yeah. that's a decision of the government that can be changed and say, listen, right, guys, okay, we could let you away. You've had no taxes to pay on this or limited number, limited amount of tax. We're going to take back two or 3,000 units off you and we're going to use them for the, the good of our state. You know, and even if we have to pay for them, Let's do that and, and create some sort of opportunities here for children for children to come out of homelessness, which in turn reduces the tension. Yeah. And, and it's clear that, you know, okay, we're doing something proactively. Why Absolutely. is that the case? Why is that not something that when you talk about, you talked earlier about um, accepting homelessness, you can't accept it when you put those numbers sitting there. Empty, empty rental, high quality apartments being held ransom for profit. That's there is choices there, and their legislation that we created to bring in the investors, we can create another legislation that, that changes those things. Absolutely. And it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be at the cost of bringing in investors. You can you can get a middle line there. There's no doubt about it. If people will be brave, and it needs bravery on the part of the politicians, but my God, who has to suffer much more to get somebody to be brave? Yeah, it's not, it's not right that our children and our families are suffering this way for them to be brave and say, right, we're going to stand up to the, to the property owners. We're, you know, we're going to take a chance that our voters will actually still vote for us because we've gone down this route. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think that it's so important that we keep, um, you know, putting that idea out there and listen, thank you so much, Niall, um, for all the work you're doing and look forward to seeing the, the other great work that you do and your team does and your office does. Um, and if people want to contact you in terms of issues around their own children um, or children issues related, how can they do it? It's very easy. Go, go on our website. It's just oco.ie. That's the website. And uh, all the all the information is there. You can contact us, send us an email or you can phone number. Phone number is free phone is 1-800-2020-40. Delighted to hear from people. And if we can help, we will. And if we can't help, we might be able to point you in the right direction as well. And listen, Rory, thank you. And thank you for all the work you're doing as well. I and mean, it's important you keep things to the fore and keep people honest. Um, well done in your work. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks a million, Niall. We'll talk Take to care. you soon. Bye. That was Niall Muldoon there, uh, Ombudsman for Children. He said, if you want uh, to contact him, it's um, oco.ie um, and listen, doing great work. So thank you so much, uh, listeners. And we will talk to you all very soon. <laughs>